just want to say again, it's a pleasure and privilege to be back again with you guys, um, looking around at actually many of you who I, I don't know. Um, but uh, I'm just so happy to see that uh, God has been blessing the ministry of Indelible Grace. And uh, as we, we pray that uh, he will continue to bless you uh, through the word. I haven't been back since the pandemic started. A few things happened in the meantime. Uh, I've been uh, fostering kittens and I was tempted to give you guys a message from the lessons of kittens. Um, but I figured, uh, no, we should probably just go back to scripture instead. Um, I've been listening to uh, more K-pop because I, I was really bored. Um, you know, so, so my mind has probably melted a little bit. Uh, I spend way too much time staring at the computer screen. So my eyes are like old people's eyes now. So if you see me like taking off my glasses and stuff, it's because I'm having problems focusing on the page. Um, but all in all, God has been good. Um, we've been ministering to the grad students at, at UC Berkeley and actually around the Bay Area. And it's, you know, it's really kind of neat, uh, you know, having a bunch of grad students. So, you know, we're talking about the nerdiest of the nerds. Um, and, you know, we talk about how the gospel impacts science, how the gospel impacts social justice, how the gospel impacts, um, you know, just uh, the way that we think um, and, and, and work and practice uh, on the college campuses. Um, so, I, again, I thank you guys for your support. And without further ado, let's get to our scripture passage. Our scripture today is going to be from John chapter 4, probably a fairly familiar passage to many of you uh, if you've been in uh, church for, for a while. Uh, so John chapter 4, will be focusing on verses 1 through 26. So please give your undivided attention to the reading of God's holy word. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Um, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and have to come to draw water. 
Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you're with now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you said that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. This is God's word. So again, this is uh, probably a familiar story for, for many of you who uh, have been Christians for a while. Um, I've probably heard at least a dozen sermons on this, and uh, that doesn't count all the Sunday schools, commentaries, articles, uh, you know, offhand references that I hear to this story. And from this story, we get a lot of familiar kind of Christian phrases that we use, right? I mean, living water, uh, thirsting no more, uh, worship in spirit and truth. Uh, you know, and, and what do these terms mean? You know, what is, is Jesus getting at? So you might ask the question, right, you know, if, if we hear this sermon so many times, then Darren, why are you preaching this to us again? I mean, you know, can't we get something a little different, something new? Well, it's because I noticed something about this passage, which I, I wanted to share with you, and then you know, I'll get to that. Um, and it, it kind of uh, goes, uh, you know, in a way, it, it illuminates something which I think a lot of recent messages I've been hearing um, haven't really been getting at as much. Uh, you guys can probably guess the punchline. Uh, but, you know, in, in dealing with um, students on the campus, um, we work a lot at what we call contextualizing uh, the message, right? We want to bring the message to where people are. We want to Right, uh, to, to, to get to know people, uh, you know, from their backgrounds, from their cultural backgrounds, and find ways to communicate the gospel in, in relevant ways. Of course, right, there's dangers in that because in, in trying to meet them where they are, there's always the temptation to, to tweak or change the message. Um, and a lot of contextualization I, you know, basically have heard about this passage lately is the idea that Jesus is championing some form of justice, um, that he's uh, showing respect to this woman and crossing divides, right? The divide between men and women, uh, the divide between, uh, you know, so, so between the gender divide and also between Jew and Samaritan, uh, between a racial divide. And indeed, some of this is helpful. Indeed, Jesus himself does embody in his actions how the gospel upends our cultural expectations for gender. Um, Even within the culture here, right, between Jews and Samaritans, a God's chosen people. He's upending their culture. 
Um, and, you know, uh, the Bible does this in many other places. Uh, we, we, we read about how we as Christians have inheritance as sons. This isn't saying that only uh, guys get the inheritance, but this is saying that, well, back in the time, sons got the, you know, the prime share. But now everybody gets that same inheritance, the prime share, regardless of your gender. Um, we see the way that the gospel upends the, the gender relations by, well, who, who are the first people to testify to the greatest event, the most important event in history? Of course, I'm speaking of the resurrection of the dead. It was women. And did you know that women's testimony back in the day did not count in the court of law? But this is how God chooses to operate. And here Jesus is, you know, he's crossing the line. He's going to speak to this woman. Um, and we also see the gospel reconfiguring racial realities, right? Uh, again, Jesus approaches uh, a Jew approaching a Samaritan. This is something that, you know, Jews avoided uh, because Samaritans, they were kind of, you know, unclean. Um, but there are limits to contextualizing this passage. Jesus meets her where she is. But, you know, insofar as today's popular culture as well as academic culture to some extent, uh, the, the way of envisioning social justice it is often built on what we call critical theories. Uh, and as a PhD student in history, uh, you know, I, I studied a lot of this stuff. So there's a lot of nuance and I'm going to like brush over the nuances. So, you know, if you want the nuance, you have to talk to me personally. I have to just kind of like uh, cut to the chase. Um, but, uh, and, and because these things have their value, right? I learned a lot from them. But, they see the diagnosis of society's problems and the solution to society problems is to be offered in seeing where the power differential is, right? You know, your boss versus employee, uh, right? Between different races, between different genders. And they want that power relationship to be reversed. And that's how they're going to solve things. Unfortunately, this passage here cannot bear the weight to support that kind of critical theory. Um, we don't really see Jesus diagnosing uh, a difference of power as the problem, as the key problem. I mean, you know, maybe he's doing some things that, uh, you know, might be reversing some power relationships, but that's not kind of the focus here. And it's definitely not being offered as a solution to the problem. So rather, as I approach this passage, I want to say, Right, you know, we, we talk a lot about contextualizing the gospel to the culture. But how often have you heard someone say, we need to contextualize our culture and ourselves to the gospel? Right, because if we're contextualizing the gospel to the culture, then we're assuming that the culture is just like static. It never changes. It's almost sacred, right? I mean, culture never changes. Uh, you know, as a historian, I can, I can explain to you, you know, if, if that's how you think, we need to talk. So we're saying change the gospel, but not the culture? Change the gospel, but not ourselves and our ideals? Isn't that backwards from how the Holy Spirit convicts us? Isn't it the gospel that confronts us, that convicts us, that changes us? And so our ideals 
need to be recontextualized to the gospel. And here's the, the insight, which I haven't actually seen in any commentary. I don't know. Maybe, Michael, you've seen some commentaries that actually addresses this. But as we come to verse 26, the last line, where Jesus says, I who speak to you am he, uh, literally the translation says, I am the one speaking to you. If you've heard enough sermons from the Gospel of John, you might have noticed I said in the first two, uh, the first two words were, I am. And if you've been a Christian long enough, you might have heard of the great, of the seven I am statements that are found in the Gospel of John from John chapter six to John 15. Uh, I am the bread of life. Uh, I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. These seven I am statements pointing us to who Jesus is. <clears throat> and you know, those are not the only places in the, in, in the Gospel of John where uh, John uses this phrase in Greek, ego imi, I am. Um, he uses this phrase others places, uh, John chapter 5, when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Um, bad Greek grammar there, actually. The grammar there in Greek is as bad as it is in English, right? Because you should match, right, tenses. Uh, before Abraham was, past tense, should go with, you know, I was, past tense. So Jesus says, I am, present tense, which, you know, is bad grammar. But of course, what Jesus is pointing to is Jesus is pointing to Exodus, where Moses meets God in the burning bush. And who did God identify him as himself as? I am who I am. This was the name that God revealed to his people, to, to Moses. And when Jesus uses this phrase, I am, when John highlights Jesus using this phrase, I am, uh, it, it seems to jump out at us that God, Jesus is identifying himself in a very clear way. And so the first I am statement in the Gospel of John is actually right here. Uh, so I don't know if we want to revise things and say uh, there's there's um, eight I am statements rather than seven, and that doesn't count the before Abraham was I am statement. But I am, ego e me, the one speaking to you. And so, right, we can talk about, right, the, the ways that the gospel changes us in our approach to relationships uh, between one another and reconciliation in, in meeting people who are different from us. But the point that Jesus is making here is that maybe a lot of these differences are being made too much of. And where is our focus? Where do we get the power and the change to enter into the world to meet the transformation? We're going to meet it in Jesus, the great I am. You know, when we talk about the Samaritan problem, <laughs> the, the issue between Samaritan and Jews was not really a, a difference of power differentiation, uh, the way that modern critical theorists might try to uh, you know, make this out. It doesn't really make sense. Uh, you know, saying that this is what's going on here would be kind of like saying, 
um, you know, a UC Berkeley student goes onto Stanford campus and, right, uh, by nature of being a UC Berkeley student, has power over the Stanford student, right? The Stanford student, you know, any Stanford alums here would probably be wrinkling their eyebrows and saying, huh? That makes no sense whatsoever. Um, and, you know, because Jesus is in Samaritan territory. Uh, so there's no, like, power advantage that Jesus has as a Jew here. He's the foreigner. He's the outsider. Um, Jews didn't go to Galilee. Jews didn't go to Samaria. Um, this was actually the easier path to go from Judea to Galilee. But Jews didn't take it. Jews would take the long way around uh, in order to avoid this place. So Jesus actually is taking a shortcut. Um, and, you know, you might be asking, well, what's the background of this animosity? Well, the background of this animosity is that, um, right, they were once one kingdom of Israel, uh, the northern kingdom, uh, that they split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Um, and the southern kingdom remained with the line of David, the kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel, uh, they had all these kings who are not from David's line. Um, and they imported foreign gods, particularly during the dynasty of Omri, who was the father of King Ahab, who was a particularly nasty king in the Old Testament. But you know something, you know, if we were talking about power differential, the Northern Kingdom, Samaria, which was the capital of you know, the Northern Kingdom, which had all these other gods, they were a cosmopolitan kingdom. Um, archaeological finds show that they had plenty of trade with their neighbors. In fact, Judah was kind of the, the podunk backwater. Um, so, so, you know, maybe, maybe the, the, the power differential here would be, you know, some, someone from North Dakota coming to California, uh, and saying, oh wow, the North Dakotan has some kind of, uh, you know, uh, power advantage over the Californian in California. And you're like, uh, you know, North Dakota? What? <laughs> um, and so the thing is, is that, you know, these guys, um, because they've imported foreign gods, none of their kings were faithful to God. Uh, whereas in Judah, maybe like, what, four kings were, were faithful to God. Everybody else was pretty bad. So the Samaritans were of mixed descent, mixed religion. Um, in the book of Ezra, chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, it showed that the Samaritans were actually opposed to the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. So they were actually seen as enemies to, uh, to the Jews who returned from exile. Um, this is uh, not in the Bible, but in 128 BC, uh, the Jews actually returned the favor by destroying the Samaritan temple uh, at Mount Gerizim, which was actually this mountain here that the woman is pointing at. <clears throat> And so, right, understanding this from the Bible's context, and actually maybe the context of John itself, right, uh, we see the themes in John chapters 1 through 3. Uh, probably a lot of chapters very familiar to some of you. Jesus is always using very ordinary circumstances to point to something and talk about it in a way that makes everybody go, huh, what are you talking about, Jesus? Um, and, and I'm always a big fan of, of trying to encourage you when you read the Gospels to read it with fresh eyes and not go, oh yeah, yeah, I know the answer to, to all this stuff. But you know, just 
Step back, read it the way that you read it when you first read it, when you read it as a child. And I remember when reading the Gospel of John as a child, I had no clue what Jesus was talking about uh, because it just didn't seem like he was staying on topic. Um, and it's because the contrast, right? Like, basically, it's because Jesus is not teaching about the earthly things, right? He's talking about earthly things using earthly questions, and he's using these earthly things to point to a heavenly reality. And if we don't think about the heavenly reality, we're not going to understand anything Jesus says. And we're going to completely miss what Jesus is saying in Scripture. Um, this is the same for the woman at the well here as it was in the previous chapter when Nicodemus came to see Jesus. Uh, interesting contrast with Nicodemus. Nicodemus came in the dark of the night. He meets this woman in the bright light of the noonday sun. Ironically, both in the darkness and the light, both times of social isolation when many others would not be around. Like Nicodemus, uh, she takes Jesus' words in a fleshly, earthly sense, even though it makes no sense, right? Uh, Nicodemus is like, born again? How do, how, how do we do that, right? How do we go back into a mother's womb? Right, the earthly thinking, and Jesus is like, "Hey, dude, you're a teacher of Jerusalem. Uh, you know, can you keep thinking like this?" And Jesus tells her, "Like living water," and she's like thinking, "Oh, well, that will save me a lot of trouble, uh, having to come back to this well again, uh, again." Right? It, it, it makes no sense. Um, but with the Samaritan, uh, right? Jesus here, he's coming to a place without any local familiarity. Uh, of this arid region that she has, uh, asks for this water. He asks for this water where? At this well. And what kind of, what well is this? Well, it tells us it's Jacob's well, the, the well that, that Jacob dug. And you know what happened at this well? Um, actually, uh, sorry, it wasn't this well. <laughs> it was another well. But uh, call, recalling Jacob, uh, we, we are rec- we're recalling, actually, uh, scenes that happened at wells in the Old Testament. Uh, in Genesis 24, uh, what happened? Uh, well, um, Isaac met Rebekah. Um, at another well, Moses met uh, the daughters of Jephro and met his wife there. Exodus 2, 15-16. These are, it recalls ancient scenes of betrothal. And here we see Jesus calling a woman without a proper marriage into a new redeeming relationship with himself, a call to join in the wedding feast of a lamb. And he does this through bringing up living water. Um, and living water, right, actually would have rung a bell uh, for Samaritans and, and Jews because uh, living water is, is the idea of, of, I mean, like running water, right? So it's not still water. In the desert region, running water is great because it's clean. Still water gets stagnant. Um, and in rabbinic law, um, r- living water was the clean, pure water that was required for a source of purification. But when Jesus brings this up, he's recalling the prophets also. Because what does Jeremiah 2.13 say about living waters. He says, my people have committed two sins, two evils. They have forsaken me, 
the fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So, you know, in answer to the woman's question, hey, are you greater than our, our father Jacob who gave us the well, gave us the source of water? <laughs> and Jesus is like, you know, hold my cup. Yeah, indeed, he is greater because he is the fountain of living waters. Uh, he, he is, uh, you know, greater than any well to be dug by the patriarchs. Um, but we have forsaken him. We have turned our attention to other things. Let other things change us over letting Jesus define our identities. The visionary temple of Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12, alludes to the imagery of a garden and a tree of life. And what do we see here, right? We see an image of uh, being brought to the back door of a temple. Behold, water was issuing forth below the threshold of the temple towards the east. Uh, the temple faced east. The water was flowing down below the south and the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. And on the banks, both sides of the river, there grow all sorts of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, their fruit will not fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, their leaves for healing. On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. Do you see this image? Uh, this this uh, vision of a temple, right? This is not actually a physical temple. This is a vision. Uh, and the, the image of the, the temple is the source of the living water, this flowing water. And it's going flow to, flow to the east, to the west, essentially to the ends of the earth. And, and it's coming from the temple. And what does this water do? Uh, Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean from your uncleanliness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So this living water, uh, I mean, it'd be nice, you know, if, if there was some kind of magical water, I drink from this water. And that's it. I don't have to drink ever again. You know, just toss this away. Uh, that'd be great. But you're still going to die. It's not going to be of dehydration, but it's going to be of something else. What we need is something greater. See, darkness cannot comprehend the light. We saw this in John 1.4. Those born of the flesh cannot understand the things of the Spirit. We saw this in, in John, you know, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. Those focused on earth, what we've got blinders on. We, we can't see the heavenly things. You might ask, is, is Jesus being a little unfair to the Samaritan here? I mean, you know, the Samaritans only read the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, what we call the Pentateuch, the five books. They rejected the prophets from Samuel, the Kings and Chronicles. And, and, you know, actually, let's give them some credit. From an earthly perspective, this actually makes total sense. Because the books of Samuel, Kings and Chronicles, and uh, the prophets afterwards, they have this incredible pro-Judah slant to them. 
Uh, and and uh, the the Samaritans, I mean, rightly so, could see this as, as you know some kind of propaganda against them. Uh, you know, of course, you're not going to read, uh, you know, accept the scripture, right? Basically, saying you know you guys you guys suck. While the the Jews, right? You know, they they got the the the, the line of David. Um, you know, all your kings are evil, and our kings are actually also evil, except for for those four guys over there. Um, but the thing is that it's remarkable that the Samaritan woman still recognizes Jesus as a prophet in a day and age without hidden cameras, without social media, uh, for the stranger uh, to to basically, <laughs> you know, know what's going on in her personal life, um, her personal dishonored life. And so, so she, you know, she tries to change the subject, right? It's like, uh, you're a prophet, aren't you? Uh, you know, I, I kind of imagine this embarrassed laugh that she gives as she says that. Um, and, you know, again, someone who reads the five books of Moses, or at least heard of the five books of Moses, is probably thinking of Deuteronomy 18.18, a prophet like Moses, uh, as opposed to a prophet... Uh, you know, John's, John the Baptist's denial of that he is that prophet. Um, and, and so she asks him about the mountains, right? And this is the thing, right? Uh, John doesn't name this mountain, but we can put two and two together. And if you read the Old Testament, this is Mount Gerizim. Of course, a lot of you guys are probably saying, okay, that doesn't ring a bell, right? Because uh, it, it might be a kind of obscure reference to the Bible. Actually, it's not very obscure in the Bible. It's actually a very prominent mountain in uh, the, the, the books of Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 11.29. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are taking, uh, entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Okay, so this is Israel entering the promised land for the first time, and Mount Gerizim is the mountain of blessing. Deuteronomy 27, 12. When you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, Benjamin. And, and this carries on to Joshua, right, when, uh, when he's leading the conquest of the promised land. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native birth with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark. Right, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the one that melts Nazi faces, if you've seen the Indiana Jones movie, uh, before the Levitical priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant to the Lord. Half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at first to bless the people of Israel. You know, the Samaritans were not wrong. Mount Gerizim was the place where they met God was the place where they got the blessing of God, was the place of covenant renewal with God. <clears throat> but they weren't entirely right either. And, you know, Jesus kind of affirms some of this pro-Judah slant of the prophets is not exactly entirely propaganda. Because the temple in Jerusalem is a thing. It's a thing based in heavenly reality. But it's also not the thing. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's not taking Samaria and Judah and, and saying, oh, you know, uh, power differential relationship. You know, let's, let's reverse some of this. Try to equalize everything. Right? Jesus is actually not performing critical theory here. But what Jesus is doing is that he's being more critical than critical theory. 
and pointing that, you know, your earthly solutions are missing the point. The point is that Mount Gerizim is not the thing. The point is the temple in Jerusalem is not the thing. Because worshipers need to worship in spirit and truth. That is the thing. The temple in Jerusalem is about to become as obsolete as the mountain of Gerizim. Why? Because John 1.14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten son of the father, full of grace and truth. 1.17, the law was given through Moses, right? Mount Gerizim and stuff. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only begotten God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. And you know, Jesus says in John 1.15, right? He, remember, like, there were some like doubting disciples, right? Uh, Nathaniel, uh, you know, what good can come out of Galilee, right? And Jesus basically says to them, you know, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angel, angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And this is another reference to Jacob, who had a vision of angels ascending and descending. And he said, this is the house of God. This is where God is. I've met God here. And what's Jesus saying? You're going to meet God here. Where? In Jesus. This is where we meet God. Um, You know, Jacob built a, a little shrine to commemorate it. Uh, the temple uh, and tabernacle would be larger monuments of where we meet God. But what's Jesus saying? Jesus is the living water. Jesus is the place where we meet God. Jesus is the house of God. Isn't that a temple? That vision uh, that Ezekiel saw of the temple, the streams of living water flowing to the east, the streams of living water flowing to the west. That's not a vision of a building that we're going to like, you know, build on in Jerusalem. That's a vision of Jesus. Jesus, the one who gives the living water. From the purification vessels, uh, where he turned the water into wine in the Cain of Galilee, to the judgment on the temple of Jerusalem, both of these in chapter 2 of John. We see that the actual spiritual action is not taking place in a physical location. It's it's not where the big buildings are. It's not where the, the spiritual buildings are. The spiritual action is where Jesus is. If Jesus is in some podunk area in Galilee, that's where the spiritual action is. If Jesus walks into the temple of Jerusalem, well, now that's where the spiritual action is. God is spirit. And the Holy Spirit, recalling Ezekiel 36, is giving new birth. Right? Again, what Jesus said to Nicodemus, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. God is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of spirit is spirit. So the question is, right, again, as we come to the Bible, are we meeting Jesus? Or are we trying to contextualize him to our lives, our agendas, our ideologies? Or are we letting Jesus confront us? Does Jesus make you squirm in your seat? Because... I mean, no, he makes everybody uncomfortable. He made Nicodemus uncomfortable. He made the woman of the well uncomfortable. He makes his disciples uncomfortable all the time. If he doesn't make you uncomfortable, maybe you're not meeting Jesus. Maybe you're revisioning him, recontextualizing him, and maybe 
we're ultimately missing the point. So yes, there's a place to contextualize the gospel to the culture so that we can give the gospel to people where they're at. Jesus does that here, where when he meets the Samaritan woman and talks to her as she is. But does Jesus contextualize us to the gospel? And he is the one who speaks, telling, bringing the truth. I am the one speaking to you. Not, not me, Darren, here, like standing here, but Jesus. He speaks to us. He stops us. He leaves us short. We, we do what? Like the woman at the well, we look for excuses. We look for diversions. Because God's word is not a safe space for our, our ideologies, for our idols. Jesus will even judge the temple in Jerusalem because the true temple is here. So do we see Jesus? Is Jesus the one who is calling us, calling our attention to him? Because ultimately, when we come to this passage, yeah, I mean, no, again, we can have a conversation about how uh, you know this uh, works out towards reconciliation and justice and bringing together people who are different and people who have conflicting ideologies. There's definitely things to be learned there. But the first thing that Jesus points us to is not changing uh, our, our, our systems, right? No matter how bad they are, because no matter how good they are, um, you know, messed up people will still messed up good systems. But rather, Jesus calls us to see the great I am. John chapter 20, 30 says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of disciples, which are not written in this book, right? We don't have time to talk about everything about Jesus, even in this passage. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by, by believing, you may have life in his name. And we, we even see this actually later here when the woman goes and tells her neighbors, what is the response of her neighbors when they meet Jesus. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Father, you are the great I am. You are the one speaking to us. Father, open our ears that we may hear what you have to say to your churches. Lord, open our hearts. Replace the heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Lord, let those of us, we who are born of the flesh, be born again of the Spirit, so that we may open our eyes and see the heavenly realities, the things that will last, not the things that will fade away. Father, Help us to know what it means to see Jesus, to put our treasures in heaven, to be recontextualized by the gospel. That, Lord, even as this life fades away, we may open our eyes when we, after we draw that final breath and we shall see face to face our risen Lord and Savior to be with him forevermore. Thank you, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.